2, and tonight we'll consider chapter, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Romans 2, and then verses 6 through 11. In this portion of the Word of God, Paul will teach us that God is the perfect judge. His evaluations are always fair and are based on fact, not fiction, truth, not falsehood. God is the perfect judge. His evaluations are always fair and are based on fact, not fiction, truth, not falsehood. The evaluation of human beings by human beings is flawed even when it is good because we seldom have all the facts. We can examine evidence and make judgments, and sometimes we're called upon to do just that. That in itself is not sinful. But our evaluation will never be as accurate as the evaluation that God makes because he has all the facts. And no matter how many facts we can gather, we still will never have the facts that, uh, the magnitude of the facts that God has. Now this is one of the problems of the moralist. The moralist judges unfairly. And so the moralist judges wrongly. The moralist judgment or evaluation is that the immoralist is condemned and in need of justification before God, but he himself is not. But that evaluation is only half right and is therefore wrong. It's dead wrong. He's right that the immoralist needs justification. He's wrong that he doesn't need justification. So Paul argues in this passage that God always makes fair and just evaluations and that his evaluations, his judgments, are based upon truth unlike the evaluation that the moralist makes. Now Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, in New American Standard, it says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Actually, that's one place that the New American Standard does a poor job of translating. So I want to point that out to you. The, the text actually says, We know that the judgment of God is according to truth upon those who practice such things. Okay? It's according to truth. So ju God judges based upon the truth. In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul concludes this one mini-section by saying there is no partiality with God. In other words, you don't get a better score on God's test because he likes you, because of favoritism. God is going to evaluate you fairly, and God is going to evaluate all mankind fairly. So you see the contrast that Paul's setting up. The moralist doesn't evaluate fairly. The moralist doesn't have all the facts, and the facts that the moralist has the moralist is improperly evaluating. Remember, the moralist has evaluated the immoral person as needing a Savior, but not that they themselves need a Savior. So Paul says, you're wrong about that evaluation. God judges fairly. You're not judging fairly. So what I'm, what I'm trying to establish here at the very beginning is chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, concern the moralist and, and the fact that he needs a, a Savior as well, but they also have an overall context of the concept of judgment, fair and unfair judgment, right judgment and wrong judgment, or evaluation if you prefer. Remember again, the moralist is evaluating unfairly and wrongly. God is going to evaluate fairly. Now, if you get that context, if you put everything else 
in these 11 verses into, into that box. And remember, it's a judgment context. It's an evaluation context. Then the difficulties that we'll see in verse 7, per, particularly, won't be quite so big of, uh, won't, won't be quite so large of difficulties. So look at verses 1 through 5. Now, this is as far as we've gone so far. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you yourself, for you who judge, practice the same things. Verse 2, and we know that the judgment of God is according to truth upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance or should lead you to repentance, is Paul's concept. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Chapter 2, verse 5 is a reference to the great white throne judgment, which, Paul, which uh, John discusses in Revelation chapter 20. By the way, in, in terms of different translations, two of the translations I use the most for my own personal study are New American Standard, and actually this might surprise some of you, New King James. New King James does a real fine job in certain places. In chapter 2, verse 2, New King James got it exactly right, almost word for word, what the Greek language actually expresses. So just because it says King James doesn't mean it's always bad. Sometimes those uh, editors did a very fine job in in translation. So we we see that the immoralist has has not quite the standing before God that he or she thought that she had. And in fact, in verse five, Paul is not very complimentary to the to the moralist. Uh, I hope I said moralist a minute ago. I get the immoral support back. The moralist is said to have a stubborn and unrepentant heart. And I imagine there was a little bit of shock to the moralists when they found that out. What, you know, but that's because God can see that, but we might not be able to. I can see the deeds that you perform. I can hear what you tell me. I can watch your facial expression, so I can see. You know, you, sometimes you get to you learn to read people, but I can never truly know what's in your heart. But God knows. And remember, what box are we in? We're in a judgment or evaluation box. So God sees what's going on in their heart, and they are storing up wrath for themselves for the day of judgment. So we've got two categories of persons now that are going to be at the great white throne judgment, and that's moral people and immoral people. And the only other category, actually that, that's everybody, but Paul's going to throw in a subcategory of moral people, the Jew, and he's going to make sure everybody knows everybody needs justification. And if you don't get it, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. Now, the last phrase of verse 5 is where we need to begin tonight. And so Paul's going to say, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, God is the subject also of verse 6. And he says, quoting or alluding to an old, two, two Old Testament passages, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now, this principle that Paul expresses here is, a, is an established principle to the Jewish mind and also to the Gentile mind of his day. So here Paul is alluding to, but he's not directly quoting Psalm 62, 12, 
and Proverbs 24:12. The reason I say he's alluding to it, but not directly quoting it, is because in both Psalms and Proverbs in the Hebrew, it doesn't say who will render every man according to his deeds or to his work, works, plural. It actually says who will render every man according to his work, singular. Now that's, that's a bit of a difference. It's a subtlety, but it's going to help us in a minute to make, uh, I think the whole thing will become crystal clear for you if we make that distinction and you understand uh, there's going to be a difference between being judged according to one's work singular, scripturally, and being a, judged according to one's deeds, plural. Let me explain. In the, the context of Psalm chapter 62, God is able to deliver his people. That's what the psalmist is saying. And his deliverance is an act of love. The covenant of God is just in his rewards as well as his punishment. He will richly reward those who trust him and who shun man's deceptive power. The singular then, which is used in Psalm 62, according to his work, is used, and this is important, in a positive concept, context. The singular is used in a positive context. Proverbs 24, which is also the passage that Paul's alluding to here, is somewhat of a positive context, but it's a much more difficult passage, and, and there's no way we have time to, that would take all the time we have left tonight just to discuss the context here. But what I want you to see is when the word work was used in the singular, and the evaluation of one's work, singular, was in, in view, it's, po it's usually a positive concept, meaning the work that was being evaluated was a positive work, not a sinful work. Okay, Work singular, positive. Now, this phrase, according to their deeds, plural, like Paul is using it here, though, is also used five other times in the New Testament. I'm going to give you the references. I'll ask you to look them up later, but I'm going to tell you the context of each of them as we, as we go through it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15, Paul is talking about the, the false apostles there, people who are like Satan and pretend to be angels of light but aren't really being angels of light. They will be judged according to their deeds, uh, plural. In 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith, remember him? He's, he's one of those people that Paul names names. Uh, sometimes we're afraid to name names, and we're not apostles, and we probably ought to be cautious about it. But, but Paul wasn't afraid to. This Alexander the coppersmith fellow had given him a hard time, had hindered the ministry of the gospel, and he was an enemy of the gospel. He was an enemy of Paul. And Paul says he's going to be judged according to his deeds, plural. In Revelation 18.6, uh, the same phrase is used, judge according to their deeds. It's the judgment of Babylon the Great in the tribulation. Again, a negative concept, a sinful concept. Revelation 20:12, that's the judgment of the unbelievers at the great white throne. In Revelation 20:13, the judgment also of the unbelievers at the great white throne. I want you to turn there for just a second. I do think we have time to, to take this very quick side trip. Quick but important. Because this is where the moralist and the immoralist are going to end up if they never trust Jesus Christ for eternal life. They're going to end up at the great white throne judgment. Verse 11 of this, chapter 20, Revelation. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. 
from whose, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, watch, according to their deeds. Singular or plural? Plural. Now, just from what I've shown you so far, and I'm not holding any passages back, by the way. There's, there's a couple more I'm going to tell you from the Old Testament that's going to back it up. Just from what you've seen so far, if it's plural, would you think that those deeds are positive or negative? Negative. negative. The same way if we skip down for the sake of time in, in verse 15, I'm sorry, in verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. John is just making the point again, and this is in a negative concept con context. Each time those, that phrase is used, it's in a negative context. That's the same way that it's used in the Old Testament usage in Psalm 28.4, Isaiah 59.18, Jeremiah 25.14. Since this may be a different concept for you, I want to say those verses again. Psalm 28.4, Isaiah 59.18, and Jeremiah 25.14. Again, that's where those prophets and the psalmist use the phrase, according to their deeds. They'll be judged according to their deeds, and it's negative. Okay. Again, judged according to their work or deed, singular, positive context. It's usually a good work that they're being judged according to. Judged according to their deeds, plural, the deeds are universally negative in the Scriptures. The only place where we don't see that explicitly uh, listed is in Revelation 20, 12, and 13. But here's my point. If every other single reference in the Scripture for being judged according to their deeds, plural, is in a negative, sinful context, you better do some pretty fancy exegetical dancing to make revelation being judged according to their good deeds. That's all I'm saying. I mean, it's a possibility, but you'd be hard-pressed to validate that possibility. So they're being judged according to their, primarily according to their negative deeds. Again, if work is in the singular, it is positive. If work is in the plural, sorry. It is negative. Now, let's look at the passage that's before us. In Romans chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, we're going to be introduced to two categories of persons. Two distinct categories of persons. Verses 7 and 10 verses 7 and 10 describe something that's positive. Verses 8 and 9 describe someone who is negative. I thought we had that all worked out. Describe something that was negative. Now, verses 7 and 10 
describe a positive situation where someone is going to receive eternal life. Verses 8 and 9 describe a very negative situation with someone receiving wrath, indignation, tribulation, and distress. Now, look at verse 7. This is the verse, I want to tell you ahead of time, that gives everybody all the problems. And you might can see why if you don't have this whole context now before you. Romans 2, 7. Back to 6 again. Who will render every man according to their deeds to those, this is New American Standard, who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Now, on the surface, what does that look like to you? Looks like you work your way to heaven by seeking to do good, doesn't it? That ought, there ought to be a huge red light that goes on right now to any reader of Romans, Paul, or the, the New Testament, or the Old Testament, that there's a huge contradiction that has just come up, because I thought salvation was by grace through faith. And it looks like, at least in the translation that we have before us, and most of them do the same thing, that Paul has changed his mind. And you know what? Some theologians that write commentaries, believe that's actually what's happening. Paul is wavering in the middle of his letter. Now, not the good commentators, but some of the more liberal ones say that Paul doesn't really have a plan. He's just kind of rambling. Well, that's not, that's not an exegetical option for us. Paul is not just rambling. Let me translate that with a little bit more literal and granted a, a translation that doesn't flow as well in terms of just reading, but maybe more accurate with regard to the thought of the Greek language, listen carefully. Paul says, on the one hand, this is verse 7, who will render every man according to his deeds, on the one hand, to the ones who seek glory and honor and immortality according to a good work with enduring ramifications, eternal life. Now, I know that's a, a bit different from the way chapter 2, verse 7 is translated in New American Standard, but that is a, it's a more literal translation, but I wanted you to hear a, a special phrase in there. Did you catch it? Listen again. On the one hand, to the ones who seek glory and honor and immortality, according to a good work with enduring ramifications, eternal life. Did you hear it? What did you hear? A good work, singular. Okay. Ordinarily... When you say a good work singular, it's a something positive. Okay. Very, very important. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Now is when you might start pulling out those charts that I passed out and, and want to, you might want to have it in front of you here in just a moment. It may help you. I hope I, I admit that the chart is crude, but I was going to write it on the board. Uh, you can probably see with my handwriting and the spelling issues why I chose to put it in, uh, in writing in front of you this way. Now, in verse 8, we're introduced to a different category of persons. There's a grammatical way that the Greek language does this. That's why I translated the first part on the one hand. Now, in verse 8, we get to a second category of persons. And Paul says, on the other hand, to the ones who are selfishly ambitious and are not obeying the truth, but obeying unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Obviously, that's the person that is... Uh, going to be at that great white throne judgment. That's the wrath of God is being poured out upon them. That's a second category of person. It's distinct, both grammatically and conceptually, from the person in verse 7. Just so we can follow through, then I'm going to come back to the chart. In verse 9, Paul continues the thought 
of the person who is uh, that he brings up in verse 8. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now in verse 10, he comes back to the person he's talking about in verse 7. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, and that's, let me translate it again, who does a good work or a good thing, singular, should be to the Greek. And then finally he's going to end there's no partiality with God, getting back to the whole concept of God judges fairly. Now the way that, that I think this is easiest to see is, at least it was for me, and, and when I do my study, and sometimes I chart these things out, and if I think that the chart that I made while I'm studying is good enough, then I'll show it to you. So this was helpful for, for me to break this passage down. And I want to be up front with you. It took me a long time. It took me several weeks to really come to a decent understanding of this passage. So if, it's, if it takes you a little while, then that's, don't feel bad. If you get it tonight, then you're smarter than me and you can be real happy. But it, it took a little while, but once I broke it down this way, it made more sense. If you look at what is sought, what is gained, and how it is gained by these two categories of people, I want you to see what is sought. The, the, the category of person that is described in verse 7, and for purposes of this discussion, we'll just talk about verses 7 and 8, understanding that 8 goes with 9, 10 goes with 7. The, the person that's described in verse 7 seeks glory, honor, and immortality. That's what they seek. And it's not a selfish seeking. They're seeking things that are inherently virtuous. Okay? What they gain, this is a bit out of order, but I did this on purpose. I want you to see what they gained second and then how they gained it third. What they gained is eternal life. Now, how it is gained is by doing a good work, according to a good work, with enduring ramifications. That's the that's a correct translation of that phrase. I'm going to get to what that, I want you to be thinking right now. If it's a singular good work, that, that the results of which are a person obtains eternal life, don't answer, but what might that good work be? Singular. Okay, just think. Well, yeah, don't answer yet. Put out of your mind what Alan just said. <laughs> but, but he's right. <laughs> okay. Now, in verse 8, what is sought for the person of the category of verse 8? What is sought it has to do with selfish ambition, which is original sin, pride. That's exactly what Satan was after. Adam and Eve were after selfish ambition. They, you know, you'll be like God if you take that fruit. What is gained, they're seeking things from selfish ambition. What is gained is wrath and indignation. Wrath, by the way, is the anger of God. It's, a, it's not a, it's, uh, although both words will be used eventually, this is not a quick anger. This is a sustained anger against sin. And they will gain that sustained anger, also indignation. Not exactly what they were looking for, is it? Matter of fact, quite the opposite of what they were looking for. Now, how did they get this? How did they gain that? They gained it by disobeying the truth and obeying unrighteousness. I was just making sure we understand that they have disobeyed the truth. Remember back to our study of First Thessalonians, the first chapter. Paul uses the phrase obeying the gospel as a synonym for faith in Christ. 
we went through an extended study. I did a paper at the uh, teaching National Teaching Pastors Conference a couple years ago on that. I'll make that available if you'd like. There was four passages that we discussed, two positive and two negative, where Paul uses this terminology. So the person in verse 8 is not hard to figure out. They, they have selfish ambition, same as Satan's original sin. They're going to get wrath and indignation. The way they get it is by disobeying the truth, rejection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the easy part. And I hope that you see that, that we can establish that. And again, I'll get you the paper to establish all the other references. But hopefully you'll see that they disobey the truth. First of all, they reject God, and then they reject the gospel. The harder one, though, is verse 7. What is meant by a good work with enduring ramifications? And it is, I want to tell you, and then I'm going to take you to a passage to validate it. It's faith in Christ. It's believing in Jesus Christ. That's the singular. That's this word has a positive connotation in the singular. Now, there is a place where this is stated explicitly. It's not stated here explicitly. But if you remember our study of the life of Christ, turn back to John chapter 6. And we'll hear it from, from Jesus' mouth. John chapter 6. Jesus is speaking to a group of people, including some Pharisees. Right after he has fed 5,000, he's walked on water, and um, there are some of these folks that peeled off. Some of them come back. Jesus is going to eventually say, in, in essence, you, you came back just for food. You're not really coming back because you trust me, because you believe in me. And so Jesus, in, for context, let's go to verse 26. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You had a physical need filled. That's, what you, that's why you want me, not because I fulfilled a spiritual need. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. By the way, similar phraseology to what Paul uses um, when he in, in chapter 2, verse 7, when he says, On the one hand, to those who seek glory and honor and immortality, according to a good work with enduring ramifications. A very similar phraseology. So do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. Now here's their retort. They therefore said to him, What shall we do that we may work? The works of God. So if I need to work, tell me what the work is that I need to do. Now watch. We're going to get into work, singular. So before we ever read it, what would you think it is? Positive or negative? Positive. Okay, this is Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to him, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Now, this is a place in the scripture where Jesus calls faith, a work. Now, it's not a meritorious work, but it is, it is a deed. It's something that one does. It's not totally passive. And so I want to, for the sake of time, I'd like to just quote a couple sentences to you from D.A. Carson. Many of you are familiar with, with Carson from his work uh, in our apologetics class. But Carson says about verse 28, listen very, very carefully. He says, The crowd misunderstands the thrust of Jesus' prohibition. 
His words do not work for food that spoils, in verse 27, did not focus on the nature of work, but on what is or what is not an appropriate goal. His point was not that they should attempt some novel form of work. Merely material notions of blessing are not worth pursuing. They respond by focusing all the attention on work. They say literally, what must we do in order to work the works of God? The expression, this is what I want you to hear, the expression, the works of God, does not refer to the works that God performs. Okay, Not God's work, but, like the NIV says, to the works God requires. Their question, therefore, resolves to this. Tell us what work God requires, and we will perform them. What works God requires, and we will perform them. From John's perspective, their naivete is formidable. They display no doubt about their intrinsic ability to meet any challenge God may set them. They evidence no sensitivity to the fact that eternal life is first and foremost a gift within the purview of the Son of Man. So you see, when Jesus, when Jesus is saying, you need to do this, they're saying, hey, well, tell us what to do. We'll do it. Oh, really? Will you? And Jesus says, well, all the stuff you're thinking is not what really is important. And in verse 29, Jesus sets them straight. The work of God, singular, what God requires, is faith. It's not faith in the abstract, an ex- existential trust without a coherent object. Rather, they must believe in the one that God has sent. So it's not faith in faith. It's not just the, something you build up that I have faith. And that's kind of a, a postmodern idea anyway, the whole faith and faith. You have to have faith in an object. So Jesus describes for us in this location, and by the and I think we have all these on an MP3 or, or something if you'd like to go back and, and listen to it when we studied the life of Christ. He says that the work singular that you need to do is to believe on the one that he sent. Now, with that in mind, go back to the chart and to, uh, to Romans chapter 2 as we finish this out. And you'll look again. I want you to look again and see what the person in verse 7 seeks is glory, honor, and immortality, all things of an intrinsically good value. What is gained is going to be eternal life. How it is gained is going to be according to a good work, singular, that has enduring results. Now do you see what Paul is talking about? He's talking about faith there. That is the good work, singular, that has enduring results. Verses 9 and 10, again, further amplify what we see in verses 7 and 8. So in case you were wondering, those that are described in verse 8 are going to have tribulation distress for every soul, every life of man who does evil. That's a participle to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, the one who disobeys the gospel. And in verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does a good work, again, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It really doesn't matter what your race is. This, it all boils down to this. Are you going to disobey the truth and reject the gospel? Or are you going to obey the truth, because that's part of the parallel too, and do a good work, singular, trusting Jesus Christ for eternal life? So you see, when it's properly evaluated, 
and looked at within the scope of the entirety of the scriptures, no, Paul didn't change his mind between chapters 1 and chapter 3. That's, that's an absurdity. He's consistent all the way through his ministry. Salvation is always by grace through faith, apart from works, plural. So that's, that's how we understand this. And I, and I think once we see that, then chapter 2 becomes much less difficult. I hope that it has for you. Again, remember, the context, the box that we're studying, the moralist has judged the immoralist, but has done so wrongly. He thought that the immoralist was in need of justification, which is a right standing before God, but that he didn't have that need. The immoralist was wrong. God is the perfect judge, in contrast to the moralist, who judges imperfectly. God's a perfect judge. His evaluations are always fair and are based on fact, not fiction, truth, not falsehood. Again, I want to remind you as we close the message statement for the book of Romans. Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through his Son, we should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude to God by dedicating our lives to him. And again, where are we in that message statement right now? We're in the very beginning of it. Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners. We're still in the section of Romans where Paul is, is, is describing three categories of persons that are in need of justification, which ends up covering the whole world, the immoralist, the moralist, and then soon to come, the Jew. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the revelation, your self-revelation in your word. We, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that can help us, uh, granted over time sometimes, but help us to understand these passages. And now, Father, as we understand them, I pray that, that the Holy Spirit would burn into our soul the fact that none of us deserve salvation any more than anyone else, and that we are all recipients of your grace. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you that you sought us. I thank you that you saved us. And I thank you that you keep us by that same grace on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. We ask all these things. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.